You know, it's hard to uh, watch the children uh, offering what they have already done for us here this morning and to see the sense of the spirit they bring to what they do and not feel like maybe we have lost something of that attitude ourselves. I know for myself as a kid, I don't think I ever really approached Thanksgiving with quite the kind of attitude that I've seen in children here today. I, I know I was taught that I ought to do a lot of things around Thanksgiving time that did not come particularly naturally to me. Showing affection to some of my distant relatives was one of those things. <laughs> Danny, I was called that when I was a little boy. You really ought to kiss Aunt Bubs, I was often told. And I knew I probably ought to, but I did not want to. I, I recognize she was a member of the family. I know she gave me stuff at Christmas time. It is clear and was clear to me that she wanted somebody to kiss her. But I didn't see Aunt Bubs all that often. And she had hair on her face. And she smelled kind of funny. And so, even though I would eventually get around to, to running up and giving her a quick peck on the cheek, inside of me, I had this kind of grrrr feeling, because I didn't want to. Dan, I want you to try some of that dish there. You really ought to have some of the candied yams. And there again, I, I recognize I probably should. I mean, somebody had obviously gone to a lot of trouble to go out there in the dark of winter and shoot those things, especially for this occasion. They looked like they'd not survived the shooting terribly well. But, but they made my seven-year-old stomach turn just to look at them. And though I would give them a taste... Though I knew they were probably good for me, again, that feeling of grrr, I don't really want to, rose up inside of me. And then the moment would come when we'd be sitting around the table and, and, and somebody would say, you know, we really ought to be really thankful for all of our blessings. And I could feel that same sentiment beginning to rise up in me too. I knew I ought to have a thankful attitude. I ought to be really grateful that I had this great family and this wonderful table and this warm and safe home that I lived in. But part of me still struggled to really feel deeply grateful inside of my heart. I don't know if you can relate to any of that yourself. As I've grown up over the years, I've learned that not everybody lives with an overwhelming, life-orienting sense of gratitude. I don't know if you've found that to be true yourself, but not everybody goes through life just feeling all that thankful. I know a lot of people have a generalized sense of appreciation for things. They know we live in a, a pretty exciting era in history where we are given all kinds of advantages of technology and and medicine, and, and so many other goods. I think many of us are at least partly aware that we've grown up with benefits that our parents and grandparents never knew. Here's a great exercise. Boys and girls, when you're at the table today, find out what in the house never existed when your 
grandparents or relatives were, were growing up as children themselves. Many of us, I think, know the rush of pleasure at the acquisition of, of some new item, some new toy, some new uh, intriguing entertainment. Many of us feel the sense of excitement that comes when we go one more rung up the ladder of family or of career or education. We've all learned the, the temporary sense of satisfaction of a sumptuous banquet or of passing a particular milestone in our life. But, but I wonder, is that really the same as living with a true spirit of thanksgiving in us? Is, is really that the same? And, and the question becomes, I think, even more pointed when we encounter somebody who looks at life differently than that. Uh, for example, when we, we run into the person that wrote the 100th Psalm that was read to us a little earlier today. Anybody who's taken time to read through the book of prayers, and that's what the book of Psalms really is, just a bunch of prayers, is probably acquainted that the persons that write about this are facing the same kind of difficulties and challenges in life as all of us are. In fact, David, who wrote a whole bunch of the Psalms in this book, is particularly familiar with pressure and conflict in his world. He's somebody who knows what it is to make mistakes, uh, to, to fail at love. Uh, he's somebody who has grieved the death of a child himself, who's lost loved ones, including his closest friends. He's a guy who knows what it is to fail on the job and, and to face the, the, the chaos and the struggle of political life. He's a guy who'd be right at home in American culture today. And yet, what is so captivating about the humanity of David, the psalmist's writings, is how permeated they are with this almost supernatural attitude of gratitude. I mean, it's just amazing how often he's drawn back, even after complaining and struggling, to this foundational sense of gratitude about life. In fact, in Psalm 100, which is our text for today... We hear David urging all the earth to join him in this. It's not enough that he feels this himself. He wants everybody else across the whole earth to be caught up in this sense of gratitude. He asks them to join him in, in shouting, don't just sit there. Don't just, just, don't just whisper about these things. Shout out the wonder of all we have to be thankful about. Do it with thankfulness and joy and praise and gladness at the intoxicating grace of this life God has given us. That's the call of David in Psalm 100. If you read your way through the Bible, you'll notice that that is also the attitude with which the followers of Jesus lived. In fact, in one of the very first video uh, clips that we get of the life of the early church, we're, we're told that they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor. These were a people who were filled with a sense of the goodness and the grace of God and His life that they've given Him. And over the course of all of human history and church history in particular, there have been these people who seem able to go through life Trusting in an inalienable, inalienable source of blessings amidst all that's not right and all that still is tattered and struggling. 
These are people who seem to live with this profound sense of gratitude that has inspired them to pour out uncommon kindness to other people. Many of you came in today. You brought with you canned goods. You were eager to share those with hungry people. It was a sign of this kind of sense of overflowing gratitude. There have been people who have lived with a sense that everything they have in life is actually a sacred trust. It's something that they're meant to to use in service. And they see that service not as drudgery, not as an ought, an obligation, but as opportunity and delight. What is going on with these people? (laughs) I mean... That's really something. What is going on with these kinds of people? What do they know that many people sadly are going to miss, maybe even this very week, somewhere between kissing their version of Aunt Bubs and enduring the candied yams? I don't know. What is it about these people? Well, the answer, I think, is found in the third verse of Psalm 100. You can get your Bible out and you can turn to it if you care to. Its location in the passage, verse 3, is very, very telling, I believe, because it's right at the center of the text. It's right there, sandwiched between two verses uh, of thanksgiving on one side and two on the other side. It's the pivot. It's the fulcrum. It's the idea on which the whole thanksgiving deal turns. And this is the truth that the psalmist says is central to experiencing a life of true gratitude. You must know that the Lord is God, he writes. It is he who made us and we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. I think that what this verse is telling us is that before somebody can really experience the fullness of gratitude, they, they, they really need to know the reality and the nature of the one to whom gratitude most fully belongs. There's a growing confusion about this, I think, in our culture today, about the one to whom gratitude most fully belongs. Um, And you can see it in lots of places. I I noticed an advertisement for a winery in Newsweek magazine. It read, The earth gives us wonderful grapes. The grapes give us wonderful wine. The wine wins us lots of new friends. Thank you, earth. Wow. There's a lot of this thinking going around today. Bit by bit, the the focus of human gratitude is shrinking. It's going from, from God to the earth to the genius of humanity then merely to our own friends, soon I think we'll just be thanking ourselves or or, or blind chance. We'll get together to celebrate me giving or good luck day. You know, this is the trend line of of the culture today. But the truth that, that I think most of us gathered here today have some strong sentiment about is that life is ultimately about so much more than this. We owe thanksgiving for existence itself, not to stardust that just came into being all by itself, not just to the accidental combination of primordial slime elements, 
Should we ever succeed in cloning human life, even the constituents of the molecules there will owe their origination to a vastly greater hand and genius. Do you not know, have you not heard, asked the prophet Isaiah, that the Lord is the everlasting God. He is the creator of the ends of the earth and his understanding no one can fathom. The Apostle John picks up the song in the beginning of his gospel. He says, through him all things were made and without him was not one thing made that has been made. What we must share with our children and keep remembering ourselves is that not only do we owe our creation to God, we owe our continuation to God, our very continuation to His grace as well. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in his conversation with the uh, philosophers of ancient Athens. It's in Him that we live and we move and we have our being. We are like fish moving In his grace, so accustomed to the grace, we no longer feel the living water of it. It is in him we live and move and have this being. Professor Lou Smeads of Fuller Theological Seminary came face to face with this reality, he said, after he suffered a heart attack some years ago. I got an experience of it myself some years ago. Smead said that it was this experience that helped him realize existentially and personally what he knew theologically. That he was truly a contingent being. That his life was utterly dependent upon grace. And this is what Smead writes. The strongest and brightest of us are fragile as a floating bubble. We are unsteady as a newborn kitten on a waxed kitchen floor. If we keep our footing in the shaky space between our arrival and our departure from this world, we owe our survival, not to mention our success, to many other people who held us up and who helped us crawl or fly or just muck our way through. And most of all, we owe it to God who keeps breathing life into our lungs the way a child keeps puffing air into a leaky balloon. The psalmist puts it this way, For the Lord is good, and His love endures forever, and His faithfulness continues through all generations. It's strange, isn't it, how faithfulness can come to be viewed at times. I don't know how many of you have ever read anything written by Philip Yancey, but he's a wonderful author. And in one of his first visits to Old Faithful in Yellowstone National Park, he just had an epiphany, an awakening. And this is what he says about it. Rings of Japanese and German tourists were surrounding the geyser opening. Their their video cameras were trained like weapons on the famous hole in the ground. A large digital clock stood beside the spot, predicting 24 minutes until the next eruption. My wife and I passed the countdown in the dining room, 
overlooking the geyser. And when the clock reached one minute, we, along with every single other diner, got up from our seats and rushed over to the windows to see the big, magnificent, wet event. And I noticed that immediately, out of the corner of my eye, as if on a signal, a crew of busboys and waiters and waitresses descended on the tables to refill the water glasses and clear away the dirty dishes. But glancing back, I was stunned. Because when the geyser went off, we tourists oohed and awed and clicked our camera, and many of us spontaneously broke out in applause. But as I looked over my shoulder, I saw that not a single waiter, not one busboy, not even those people who had finished their chores and didn't have anything to do, even looked out the huge windows. Old faithful, now entirely too familiar to them, had lost its power to move them, to impress them, to alter them in any way. Do you think it's possible for this to happen on a vastly larger scale? I mean, is it possible for a person to become so accustomed to the faithfulness of God's loving grace, His providence, His care, that he or she is simply no longer able to recognize it, no longer even moved by it. In time, I suppose, even setting and serving and swapping out the dishes at Thanksgiving can become more important to us than even... reflecting with awe and praise and wonder and joy and thanksgiving on the one from whose faithful fount all the wonders of life just keep flowing, just keep coming with rhythmic, wondrous consistency. It was not this way for those pilgrims that first gathered on the initial Thanksgiving in 1621. They, they knew the divine grace that had been poured out on them. I mean, they knew how much the divine provident hand had been faithful to them. And it was the focus of their celebration. From the time of George Washington to the time of John Kennedy onward, our nation's greatest leaders have seen it too. They've seen the, the, the wisdom of reminding Americans that we are not here by, by necessity or by right in this country enjoying the blessings we have. We are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand, they have been moved to remind us. Our greatest leaders have urged us to remember that, that we will not remain blessed as we are for very long if we ignore His provident hand or if we deny the convictions and commitments and commandments that God has given us for our good. And in the spirit of Christ himself, these leaders have challenged us to ask not what our country, not what the people around us can do for us today, but what we can do as servants of the good in the lives of others. Let's remember that as we go to our tables today, shall we? Let's, let's refocus ourselves, stare out the window once more, And remember, it will be very good 
that we take time today around our tables to give thanks for the creatures and to the creatures through whom God works His grace. It will be very good to enjoy the food and the festivities, the freedoms and the fruit of this precious life we have because God wants to see us enjoy, just like any parent does. He wants his kids to enjoy the good gifts he's given. But somewhere between kissing Aunt Bubs and doing whatever you're going to do with those yams, let us make sure that we remember it is best to give thanks, that our lives are rooted in the goodness and love of God whose faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Are you thankful like that? Are you thankful like that? In a much fuller sense than I ever had as a kid, I know I ought to be. Only now I realize what I didn't know then and that this attitude of gratitude is not so much about the ought of obligation as it is the ought of opportunity. It's not about the grrr of burden. It's about the grin of blessing at just finally seeing it clearly again, at being called back to the truth again. And my old professor, I think, said it particularly well, and with this I'd like to close. Luce Mead said, We ought to be grateful the way we ought to laugh at a very funny joke. And the way we ought to hug someone we love. We ought to be grateful the way a groom ought to be happy on his wedding day. Or a new mother ought to be glad to give her baby suck. God calls us to gratitude the way the sun says to the buried seed. You ought to break out of your shell and come alive as the flower you were created to be. Giving and gratitude go together writes Meads, like humor and laughter, like having one's back rubbed and the sigh that follows, like a blowing wind and the murmur of wind chimes. Gratitude keeps alive the rhythm of grace given and grace grateful, a lively lilt that livens a heavy world. May that song ring in your heart today. May that song ring in your home today. May that song be sung through your life and mine every day until God raises forever and finally the weight of this world. Amen.